may be seated, and as you're being seated, I call your attention to the New Testament book of John. Our text today is found in John chapter 18, verses 33 through the beginning of verse 38. And as I read the text, as we discuss the text, you will see why this is one of the texts that is commonly chosen by Christians around the world on Christ the King Sunday. Today is Christ the King Sunday, last Sunday of the Christian year. So the first Sunday of the Christian year is next week. We'll begin our celebration of Advent next week. You know, we Christians are, are so focused on Jesus Christ that we even have a calendar that's focused on Jesus Christ. And that's why our calendar takes us through the life and the work of Christ. While we notice secular holidays, while we notice civil, civic holidays, for us the focus is always on Jesus Christ. So today is Christ the King Sunday as we wrap up this Christian year, and we remind ourselves that this Jesus, this Jesus is truly King. And we use this text before us this morning to perhaps better understand what it means to call Jesus King. Here in chapter 18, we're in the last few days of Jesus' earthly life. Here in John's Gospel, he's already appeared before the Jewish religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He's already gone through a mock trial with them. They have already bruised him and harmed him and beaten him, but they cannot do what they want to do with Jesus. They want to kill Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their way of life. Jesus is a threat to their economic security. Jesus is a threat to their way of doing religion and they want him gone. But as Jews under the occupying power of Rome, they want to kill Jesus, but they do not have the power or the authority to exercise capital punishment. So they, they bring him to Pontius Pilate. The trial before the Jewish religious leaders was in the darkness of the night. So it's early, early in the morning when they get the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, out of bed. And we pick up the story in verse 33. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world, not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so, so you are a king, 
Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate then asked him, What is truth? This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, on this day particularly, we, we pray that you'll remind us what it means to live in a monarchy, to live under the rule and the reign of a king. We pray, God, that especially on this morning, you will remind us what it means to do homage to Jesus Christ and allow him to be the ruler of our lives. God, we pray that before we leave this place this morning, before we turn the lights off in this sanctuary, that every person in this room will have invited Jesus into their lives, will have enthroned him upon their hearts. Lord, save us from living superficial, shallow lives. Help us to experience and receive the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. Help us to find the focus that you would have us maintain in our lives. God, you've called us together in this place this morning. None of us are here by accident. We know that you have a word for each one of us. So God, we, we pray for great humility as we seek to hear what you have to say to us today. And God, we pray that each one of us will be very sensitive and tender to the presence of the living Christ among us. For it, it is his voice that we seek to hear. Through the power and the authority of who Jesus is, we offer this prayer. Amen. So on this morning, Jesus indeed arrives in the hall where Pontius Pilate is keeping residence while he's here in Jerusalem during this Passover. Jesus arrives to Pontius Pilate already beaten and bruised. They have slapped Jesus. They have spit upon Jesus, and they bring him to Pontius Pilate to do even further harm to Jesus. And when Jesus, this Galilean preacher, is standing before the power of Rome in Pontius Pilate, the governor, Pilate asked Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? What a strange question to ask this Galilean preacher, but you see, this was the charge. The Jewish religious leaders centered there in the temple really only had religious issues with Jesus. But Pontius Pilate wasn't concerned about any of those Jewish religious issues. So they had to have some charge to bring against Jesus, one that Pontius Pilate would notice. So what they say to Pontius Pilate is that this Galilean preacher declares that he's the king, Pilate. And we only have one king. They say this later in John's Gospel. We only have one king, and it's Caesar there in Rome. 
So the charge is sedition or treason, and they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, knowing that Pontius Pilate cannot, cannot allow there to be another king in the region. So that's the charge. Jesus is asked the question by Pontius Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And notice how Jesus answered, or perhaps didn't answer to begin with. Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? And then Pilate replied, and, and you hear the sarcasm, you can hear the sneer in his voice when Pilate says, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Jew, am I? That would have been a horrible thought for Pontius Pilate. And you notice at that point he goes on to say, your own nation, your own people, and the chief priest, your own chief priest, have handed you over to me. And then Pontius Pilate says again, what have you done? And then Jesus answers and says, my kingdom, you hear? He's acknowledging he's got a kingdom. My kingdom is not from or of this world. And then he goes on to illustrate that by saying, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting, would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here, not from this world. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. And then Jesus answered very boldly and said, you say that I am a king, for this I was born to be a king. And for this I came into the world to be a king. But then he starts talking about something that we don't expect, and I'm sure Pontius Pilate didn't expect. He starts talking about truth. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? Isn't it fascinating that here Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Here is truth incarnate. Remember Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Here is truth incarnate, enfleshed, in front of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? Isn't it amazing how ignorant we can be? What is truth? When I was a new Christian and fairly new to the scriptures and fairly new to Pontius Pilate, I thought perhaps Pontius Pilate just sincerely wanted to know what truth was. I thought maybe he was a sincere seeker after wisdom. He wanted to know what truth was. But the more that I've gotten to know Pontius Pilate, both through the New Testament and through first, first century historians like Josephus, I am now convinced Pontius Pilate is not a sincere seeker after the truth. I think he says with, with great cynicism, what is truth? You need to understand the world in which Pontius Pilate lived, and in some ways it's so much like the world in which we lived, live today. The world in which Pontius Pilate lived was a world filled with many gods. There was a head of the pantheon of gods. If you were Greek, you said his name was Zeus. If you were Roman, you said his name was Jupiter. But underneath Jupiter and, and Zeus, there were, there were a multiplicity of gods. You could choose your god, I choose my god, and we just allow each other to have different gods, and we all sing Kumbaya, and we live together. And it's a very tolerant way to create a culture. 
for you to have your God and I have my God and they have their God. And that's the way the ancients did it. And as a matter of fact, there were a lot of different truths in Pontius Pilate day. You could live truth as described by the Stoics. You could live truth as described by the, the Cynics. You could live truth as described by the Pythagoreans. You could find truth in all these people. You could live truth as defined by the Epicureans. All of those were schools of thought uh, that were existing in the first century. And they all presented to the world what truth was. And I think that's behind what Pontius Pilate is saying. He knows that there's so many definitions of truth in his culture. He says, what is truth? You see that in Pontius Pilate's day, you could, you could accept Plato's truth. You accept Socrates' truth. The list went on and on and on. They were a very tolerant world that embraced many different gods and embraced many different versions of the truth. So Pontius Pilate, in the midst of that confused world, simply says, what is truth? And here truth is standing in front of Pontius Pilate. That's, that's why as soon as Jesus professes his kingship, as soon as Jesus says who he is in regards to being ruler and lord of the universe, the very next thing Jesus begins to talk about is truth. We've got to get this right. We've got to understand what truth is. Truth is truth. You can't have yours and I have mine. You know, I am convinced that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I don't care if you think it equals 5. It does not. Truth is truth. Truth comes from God. And we've known that throughout most of the history of Western civilization. But we seem to be as confused about that today as they were in Pontius Pilate's day. Jesus is declaring here in this text that he is truth. He is king. And he is the bringer of truth. He is king. He is the one revealing truth. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means a lot to be a Christian. But one of the things it means to be a Christian is we are those in the world today who know who Jesus Christ is. We are those in the world today who know that he is God incarnate. We know that he is king of the universe, not only king of the universe, he is king of our lives. We are those in the world today who know who Jesus Christ is. Now there will come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess him to be Lord. But we are those who know that now. We know it in advance of that day. And we seek to adjust our lives accordingly to the truth as to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is king. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is definitely different from all the kingdoms we create in this world. Even the little kingdoms we create for ourselves where we seek to be the monarch. Jesus' kingdom here and now in this age is a spiritual, not a political kingdom. You know, a lot of Christians in our age have even gotten very confused over that. I'm in some Christian circles occasionally where they act as if the Christian church is just a different lobby, a different group of lobbyists, still trying to engineer society, still trying to paint a vision of the culture that they want. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, 
the way of God, the way of Christ, is in this world. It's all around us in this world, but it certainly is not from this world. It's not of this world. History, if you will, is, and I quote Charles Dickens, a tale of two cities. I'll even get a little more specific. History is, to quote St. Augustine, a story about two cities, the city of man and the city of God, or the city of man versus the city of God. You know, St. Augustine in the fourth century wrote that massive Christian work that almost became the foundation for Christian theology using the Bible. And in that massive work that he entitled the city of God, he tried to help the church of his day understand that the city of God is different from the city of man. See, when Augustine wrote that, the Roman Empire was falling. The world as they knew it was falling. So Augustine didn't want them to get confused about the city of God versus the city of man. And um, I almost feel a need to apologize, but I'm not going to apologize. I know I was trained in seminary back in those days, and I guess still true today, to not use the word man for humanity, for people. But um, city of man is just much more poetic than city of human beings or city of humanity or, or city of people. So when Augustine wrote about this truth, he called it the city of God versus the city of man. And we need to be clear on that, church. We need to be clear that Jesus is king and what that means to declare Jesus king. So let me paint a picture of the city of man versus the city of God. That's what St. Augustine did in his thousand pages. Just give me about five minutes. The city of man is the city that develops out of this world. The city of man is human-centered, is humanistic, is based on humanism. The city of man believes that Renaissance idea that man is the measure of all things, believes that enlightenment idea that man is the true study or should be the true study of man. So the city of man is human-centered. It's all about self-love. It's all about self-esteem. It's all about getting our way in the world. In the city of man, humans think they create truth. In the city of man, people believe that truth is just a human construct. It's what any particular kingdom or any particular culture or any particular society creates at any particular moment in history. They, they just create their truth. There can never be, I'm skipping ahead a little bit to the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of God, the city of God's perspective, there can never be the discovery or the creation of a new value. But if you believe that cultures get to create their own values and invent their own values and make their own value system, in that humanistic culture, in that city of man, then uh, truth can differ from culture to culture. The city of man is all about human's power. And you recall that in the Bible, very, very early in the Bible, we are introduced to the city of man. We're introduced to the city of man when, when sin came into the garden. They refused to live under the lordship of their king. But we're also introduced to the city of man in, in that remarkable chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. We don't read that much anymore, but if you don't remember, chapter 11 is all about the Tower of Babel. And it's there early in the, in the scriptures to remind us what 
humanism, a humanistic way of living, the city of man centered on humans will look like. And you recall what happened in that story of the Tower of Babel. They decided they wanted to, to honor themselves by building a tower that would go all the way to the heavens. But the most startling thing that is said by those people as they seek to build their world there in Genesis 11 is when they say, come, let us, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. So there's an illustration of the city of man. Humanism, humanistic way of living, focused on people and what people want and what people want to create. You know, if, you, if you're enamored with the city of man, if that's the only city you know, and for a large part of our culture, that's the only city they know is this human world. If you're enamored with the city of man, that's all you know, I, I really feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for those people because unless they're supremely superficial and shallow, at some point they will learn that they're connected with the city of man is a great deal of despair, hopelessness, emptiness. It's the city of man that can declare all is vanity, all is vanity. The city of man in many ways is vanity fair. There's a shallowness. There's an emptiness to the city of man. At the risk of... Um, destroying or harming one of your favorite music groups, I want to talk about a song that I loved when I was growing up. I was a strange teenager in a lot of ways. Um, my children think I'm a, a nerdy adult. I say, you should have seen me as a teenager. I stood out more as a nerdy teenager than I do as a nerdy adult. But I, I don't want to be shallow. I don't want to be superficial. I want to think about important things in my life. When I was a teenager, um, probably my favorite musical artist were Simon and Garfunkel. And I still can sing along with about all their songs. I like their songs. Simon and Garfunkel were amazing poets in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, they painted a picture of the city of man. They painted a picture of the emptiness that belongs to those people who only know this world and this life. One of my favorite songs growing up uh, was The Sound of Silence. Not sure why I liked it so much, though it, it was kind of profound. It profoundly paints the picture of what the city of man is, is all about, ultimately. You remember the words to The Sound of Silence? It's amazing that a song like this would be as popular as it's been over the years. In Sound of Silence, the lyrics say, Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. You hear how the kingdom of man, the ways of this world, just sort of subtly kind of get into your life, get into your brain. They can just slip in even while you're seeking. The song goes on, and in the naked light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, 
people writing songs that voices never share. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. And the people bowed and prayed. Isn't it interesting this song talks about prayer? And the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, you remember what the sign said? The sign said, the words of the prophets are written on subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. Yeah, it's hard to be a happy teenager when that's your music. But if you're just focused on the city of man, if you're just focused on this world, you're going to be led to despair. And you're going to find yourself trying to make sense out of the despair that you find. But I'm glad there's an alternative. There's another city vying for our attention. It's called the city of God is the way it's termed by Augustine, the way it's termed in the New Testament. The city of God, we, we know about the city of God. We are residents, if we believe in Christ, we've let him be enthroned in our lives. We are residents of the city of God, so we should know what the city of God is all about. We should know what it means for the city of God to be in competition with the city of man. The city of God is built by God. The city of God is based on the truth of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Truth is not something we create or find. It's based on the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The city of God certainly is God-centered. And in the city of God, human beings, human beings exist to worship God. We exist to serve God. And we find our highest good, our greatest joy, and our greatest delight in a relationship with God. You know, it's the Westminster Catechism that said that it was summarizing Christian faith. And it said, what is the chief end of man? What's our highest good? What's our chief purpose in life? To serve God, to worship God, and enjoy Him forever. I think those are one and the same thing, not two things. We are called to worship God, serve God. Serve God like a waiter would serve us. We are called to serve God, worship God. And the worshiping of God is delighting in God. The worshiping of God is enjoying God. We live life in this world finding our greatest good, our greatest joy in our delight of God, who God is, what God has offered us. And we know because that is who we are, our goal our reality is that we will enjoy God in this world and forever. That's the city of God. It's an eternal city. The city of man is not an eternal city. The city of God is an eternal city. The city of God is the city of peace and righteousness, delight, purpose, meaning. The city of God is what people are looking for in this world. But if they don't know to look to God, the only thing they can receive in its place are the sounds of silence. So this world, the history of this world, is all about the city of God versus the city of man, or the city of man versus the city of God. God has a kingdom. God has a city. God has a reality. 
And we get to enter that in the world here and now. When Jesus Christ takes up residency in our lives, we begin living in the reality of the kingdom here and now. We begin living by kingdom principles. We begin living as citizens of another city. We begin living as people focused on God rather than focused on ourselves. And that makes all the difference in the world and, and the world to come. The kingdom of God is, is a spiritual kingdom, but it's invading this world. Whenever we see God at work around us, we're seeing the kingdom of God, the city of God invading this world. It is such an honor to serve here at Wesley Memorial because we are busy changing lives every day. We are busy introducing people to Jesus Christ every day. We are busy ushering people into this new reality, ushering people into the city of God every day. How, do you, how does someone make that transition? Well, John's Gospel tells us that too earlier in John's Gospel. Perhaps you remember that meeting between Jesus and that good man, that religious man, Nicodemus. And Jesus said to that good man, that religious man, that upstanding citizen, if you must be born again, and if you're not born again, you will not even see, much less enter, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the city of God. So it's when we invite Jesus into our lives, we invite him to take up residency in our lives, and he will only take up residency as monarch. He's not going to be an addition to an already overfilled life. If we invite him into our lives, he will come in on his terms, not ours. He will come in to rule and reign. And when Jesus rules and reigns in our lives, we're part of a new reality. When we see God getting God's will and God's way done around us in this world, that's the inbreaking of the kingdom. We, we see glimpses of the kingdom now. We know, though, that one day the kingdom of God will be as realized on this earth as is being realized right now in heaven. So we as Christians are those who, who know who Jesus is now, and we're adjusting our lives accordingly now. And we need to understand, the people around us needs to understand, there is no neutrality in this issue. There's not a neutral zone. Some of you know I just got back from Berlin recently and uh, learned a lot about Berlin and um, East Germany versus West Germany, East Berlin versus West Berlin. And of course, from 1961 to 1989, there was a wall that separated East Berlin from West Berlin. West Berlin was democratic. East Berlin was under Soviet communist domination. The wall's gone now. You can still see where, where it was there in, um, in Berlin for those years. Now, they would have told you that there was a no man's land between East Germany and West Germany, East Berlin and West Berlin. But you know how that went. If you got into that no man's land and you were coming from communist side of Germany, trying to make your way to the democratic side of Germany, the military on the Soviet side, the communist side, would shoot you dead in that no man's land. Even though there was a strip of land that didn't belong to either country, it was not a place of neutrality. There is no neutrality on this issue concerning King Jesus. There is no existence of a no man's land. You can't have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit 
of the kingdom, the city of this world. You've got to be sold out and completely focused on Jesus Christ. And you've got to learn how to do that and still make your way in this world and not allow this world to so capture you that you're so enamored with this world that you're so distracted from the things of the city of God. You know, when I look at Pontius Pilate, he's there trying to examine Jesus. He he didn't know it, but looking back, that was an audacious thing for Pontius Pilate to be doing. We do not examine Jesus. Jesus examines us. We're in a world where people are examining Jesus. They're trying to check Jesus out. You know, we say... We say, I'll, I'll believe what I want to believe. But King Jesus says, I am truth. We will say, I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it, depending on what my emotions are and what the circumstances of life are. But Jesus calls us to repentance from what we want to do. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to new life. We may even say, My faith is very personal to me. I don't want to wear my faith on my shirt sleeve. Well, that may be what we say. King Jesus says, make me known to the nations. There's there's no neutrality between these two cities. There's no neutrality between these two cities. You know, I'm not a Christian because it brings me great comfort, though it does. I'm so grateful for the comfort that my faith brings me. I'm not a Christian because it is relevant to my life, though it is very relevant to my life and the living of these days. I am a Christian because Christianity is true. At the end of the day, that's the most important decision you have to make. Is Christianity true? Are these claims about Jesus true? If so, then we have to adjust everything. You know, every time I come back into this country, I, I get a feeling of pride. I'll admit to you, I, I get a feeling of pride when I go through passport control, even in the Atlanta airport, as much as I dislike the Atlanta airport. When I get up to passport control, I feel a little bit of pride when I get to show them my American passport. It feels good to have an American passport. I love this nation. I love this country. But every time I'm at passport control and I show them my American passport, I'm reminded that though I'm in this world, I'm not of this world. Though that I'm a citizen of the United States, my primary citizenship is in another land on a further shore. Every time I show them my passport, I realize that unlike a lot of Americans think, I have a monarch and I have to bow my knee and my life to that monarch. You know, some of us Americans want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The reality is we don't even have boots. That's why we need God. We need God's grace. We need what God can give us. It's so easy to be deluded and confused and distracted because the struggle between these two cities are so real. My friends, I want to invite you into just a few moments of silence. Because again, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to finish this message in each one of our lives. 
You know, you haven't heard the word of God today if you think this is for somebody else. We always have to hear the word of God and allow it to be made applicable to our lives, to my life. Someone invite us into a spirit of prayer as we continue to ask the spirit to finish his word to us today. Would you pray with me?